Hi, this is co-host Patrick Baird. I'd like to tell you about my new military science fiction novel, The Nowhere Navy. Decorated officer Frank Ortega reaches his final duty station. An aging Navy Corvette, the ISS Persistent, stationed in a solar system on the furthest edge of colonized space. Located light years from the war front against the mysterious enhancers, the Persistent is crewed by a motley collection of fleet rejects and raw recruits. Life aboard the ship remains slack and unmilitary until they receive a shocking signal. Most of the rest of the fleet was destroyed in a major battle. The Persistent is left alone to guard its solar system against the inevitable invasion they have no chance of stopping. The Nowhere Navy is available on Amazon.com in both Kindle and paperback formats. Thank you. Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 35 of Unknown Orbits, The Stars, My Destination by Alfred Bester. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitzey. Today's story is a epic space opera, I, I guess that's generally how it's categorized, that is filled with complex characters and a sometimes wildly imaginative plot. So our story begins when Mechanic's Mate Third, Gully Foyle, is stranded in space between Mars and Jupiter on board the ship Nomad, which was attacked and nearly destroyed by unknown forces. As the sole survivor, he manages to keep himself alive for six months on the damaged and floating derelict. Until a passing ship, the Vorga, comes up and checks on him, but then leaves without rescuing him. He's so enraged by this act of careless cruelty that he swears vengeance on the ship and all who sail in her. And that motivates him to repair the ship to the point where he can get it moving again, and he manages to get it as far as a moon of Jupiter, which he's able to crash his ship into or land roughly. But when he gets there, he finds that that moon is inhabited by a strange cult of humans who are descended from a group of scientists who were stranded there many decades before. So they capture him and they torture him and they actually tattoo a massive tattoo on his face of a flaming tiger brand. It completely disfigures his face. But he's able to escape from the cultists and steal a yacht. And he's able to take this yacht and escape and get himself back to Earth, where eventually he is pursued and captured by the forces that are trying to find out what happened to some rare elements that were stored on his ship that he's not aware of. He winds up being imprisoned in an impregnable fortress in Spain, where he meets a female prisoner, and between the two of them, they are able to escape. Now, at this point, once we get back to Earth, one of the interesting technological elements that Bester brings into the plot is the idea of jaunting. 
Jaunting is basically developing the mental ability to teleport yourself up to a thousand miles. Now, this can only take place on Earth. You can't teleport through space, but you can teleport yourself to any location that you have visited and that you have seen with your own eyes. This develops into a whole underpinning technology of society where every town, every city has various teleporting platforms. It's like almost like an airport. In, in a sense, where you go to these teleport platforms, you're very familiar with them, so you're able to use them to teleport, and you teleport to from New York to Chicago, or from New York to Cleveland, or where, wherever you're going, and almost everybody can, can teleport. So it becomes a foundational technology. Now, at this point, I'm only about maybe not even a third of the way through the book. So if you think this is a complicated plot, it is, and I'm not going to try to go in beat for beat. Like I said, so he, he escapes from this prison. He comes to realize this dangerously explosive element called Pyre E was stored aboard his old ship, and he steals the spaceship, and he and this uh, gal that he got out of prison with wind up traveling back to that moon of Jupiter to recover that element. It's incredibly valuable. You know, it's it's the most hotly pursued MacGuffin in the entire solar system, and very, very powerful forces are after that including the government and capitalists and, you know, titans of, of industry, whatever you want to call them. And eventually he winds up abandoning the woman that traveled with him to get this. And when he reappears on Earth uh, sometime later, he's a completely different character called Jeffrey Formile, who is a sort of a dilettante character who he's posing as this rich layabout who is uh, known for being extremely flamboyant. He's trying to infiltrate the upper levels of society. And one by one, he's, he's tracking down the crew members of the Vorga and either killing them or finding out that they're already dead. And um, he's ruthless. He's utterly ruthless. So this, this is where the story turns into the Count of Monte Cristo, which I understand you have not read or seen the adaptation of the Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, nor have I had anyone describe the plot to me. It's basically the same. Edmond Dantes in early 1800 France is falsely accused of being a Napoleon uh, supporter. This is after Napoleon was exiled to Elba and people were trying to restore him to the crown. So, you know, he's basically an enemy of the state. So one of his uh, friends frames him for this crime and he winds up spending 10 years at the worst prison in France. And while he's there, he befriends another prisoner who teaches him everything he needs to know to become a gentleman of society and a, and a wise man and brilliant in every, every art. And he eventually escapes and reappears as the Count of Monte Cristo. And he finds private treasure somewhere along the way and becomes wealthy. And he, one by one, he gets revenge on everybody who wound up putting him in prison. So it's the original great revenge story. And this bears more than a passing resemblance to The Count of Monte Cristo. And if I could add, Hugh Glass, the famous survivor of a bear attack who was abandoned by oh, his two friends. That was the basis for the movie The Revenant with yes. Leonardo DiCaprio. The actual story is much better than that movie. More amazing. And Nevada Smith. Nevada Smith. Yes, you're right. Another favorite movie of ours. It's yes. a little bit obscure, but awesome movie. So anyway, to cut a long story short, a very long story short, he winds up developing the ability to jaunt in space. His enemies capture him and send him adrift in the same place where he was sent adrift before, hundreds and thousands of miles from any place where he could be rescued. And he just jaunts 
through space back to Earth. And this is astonishing. So now, not only do they want him for this Pyre E element that he's hidden away, which, by the way, it's a highly explosive element where all you have to do is think about it, like you have to just think about it to teleport, and it will explode. So you can be activated by thought. So it's extremely dangerous. But now he has the ability to jaunt through space, which nobody else has ever done before. So now they want to capture him to figure that out, too. By the end of the story, he outwits and destroys many of his enemies. And there's many plot points that I've overlooked. And believe me, it would take another five minutes to go through them. And I don't want to bore you. But it ends with him jaunting from star system to star system flying through the galaxy, heading to the edge of the galaxy, and having this psychedelic moment of grand realization. That's how the, the book ends. It is a bit 1960s. So it was published in 1956. The end part that's kind of psychedelic and way out is at least 10 years before its time. Yeah. I do think that the story kind of falls apart towards the end. It gets a little wild and crazy and somewhat unbelievable. And then there's that whole psychedelic ending. But I really, really love this book. It's one of the most intelligent books that I've ever read. Because the thought that he put into the world building and the ideas like jaunting, the ideas of this fire E explosive, the world where these gigantic corporations are basically despots ruling the world with a government that's almost like a agent of them. And the characters, there's some amazing characters in this book. There's one character who is the daughter of this industrialist who's blind but can see in ultraviolet light. And she's like profoundly evil, but you don't re realize that right away. It's just an amazing piece of work. It's amazing to me that he wrote this in 1956. It almost feels like something that would have been written 10 or more years later. I have a weird relationship with it. I've read it three times at least, and I enjoy reading it every time. But when I look back at it, I feel a little unsatisfied. To me, it's like three different stories put together, and I'm not a fan of that kind of fiction. I think I would agree with you. It does feel like three different stories put together. And there are two legitimate criticisms, I think. The first one would be what I've already said, that I feel that it, like it kind of falls apart at the end. Some rather crazy things happen, and it, it's kind of cool in some respects, but at the same time as a writer, I can look at it and say, you kind of lost the thread there. There probably was a better ending you could have come up with that would have been more satisfying, and that's maybe why it's not satisfying, because it's such a weird and disjointed ending. But there's a lot of critics that love it exactly for that quality. The other thing is the character arc for the main character stretches the imagination a little bit. So at the beginning of the book, he's just a really awful guy. He's just a selfish, brutal, misogynistic, awful guy driven only by hate. It's a compelling character. I mean, you can make a compelling character out of somebody who's just driven by hate. I think he rapes two women in this book. You know, so he's got the whole rape thing going on. I think the word brute is appropriate. Yes, that's the perfect word to describe his character. At least in the beginning, it has somewhat of a hard-boiled feel to it. So it's, it's very much a, a hard-boiled character. It's the sort of character that you would see in a James M. Cain novel, you know, of a pretty awful person uh, who winds up getting trapped in something that just destroys them. So he goes from that to this 
kind of normal human being, you know, about two thirds of the way through the book. And he's driven by the hate that he wants to destroy the crew members of this ship that abandoned him. And that drives him for a good part of the book. But then when that's gone, suddenly he's transformed into this much more caring and thoughtful person. And that kind of doesn't quite ring true to me. So that that's the legitimate criticism of it. Maybe the rapes were showing that his basic nature is still there, that all this is a shell, et cetera, et cetera. However, by the end of the book, he still does turn into space Jesus. Yeah, it's, that's what he does. He, does. he turns into space Jesus and he falls in love with this rich man's daughter. And, you know, instead of being the brute who's going to force himself upon her, she completely takes him under her spell and puts him under her thumb and he becomes kind of a weak guy. He's like in love with her and he doesn't know what to do with himself. And that journey from the utter brute to that guy, I didn't really buy it. I thought it was a failure to some degree. Do you think it's possible that Alfred Bester possibly had a few chapters from this idea and from that idea and thought that they could go together? The book does feel like it could have been two or three different books. And this was sort of a pastiche of those three ideas or those three plot lines or those three characters almost. So yes, I could see where maybe the genesis of it was different stories, different book ideas, and he just basically mashed them together. But despite those misgivings, I still love the book. The parts are greater than the sum of the whole. It's widely considered one of the primary sources of cyberpunk because it has that common cyberpunk element of a dystopian future society ruled by evil capitalists who are genetically engineering people and doing awful things to the lower classes and living a ridiculous life and implanting technology into people's bodies. So it has all of these elements that became standard elements of cyberpunk years later. Like I said, it was written in 1956, which to me, this feels like a book that was many years ahead of its time. I would completely agree with that. It does feel like a... It really feels like a 1960s science yeah. fiction novel or new early wave. 70s. Yeah, new yeah. wave. It very much feels like that. So I'm not going to nitpick the parts of it that I thought were weak. And I got to tell you, one of the things about this project is for me, it's reading stuff new. I gave up reading science fiction for most of my adult life. I'm now coming back to it thanks to this podcast and reading stuff like Stars My Destination, widely considered to be a classic work of science fiction. And I'm discovering these great books and it's having a really profound influence on me as a writer. When I read something like this, I look at it and I say, I wish I could write this well. And I hope that someday if I continue to work at it, that I could get to a point where I could write something this good and this smart. So it, it's inspiring to me in that regard that it says, hey, here's the standard of what you should be aiming for as a writer. For me, this experience of this podcast has redefined in my mind what these writers were like. I think I was always a little bit intimidated by the field, and I hate to put it in these words, but almost feeling like, oh my goodness, these are writing gods, and I am Giants stepping... Giants on the earth. Yes, I'm stepping on their heels. I could never do that. But learning how human they were, how ordinary they were... I see there's not a lot of difference between me and them as people. The only difference is, can I learn to write well enough to be successful? 
that's the thing is that, you know, in the process of doing this show, we've also read a lot of bad or mediocre stuff. We realized that, you know, the early stuff that Asimov did, it was not great, that John W. Campbell really kind of molded him into the writer that he became. And Ray Bradbury, one of the heroes of my childhood, he started out writing pulpy stuff for Weird Tales magazine. There's all kinds of writers you can point to that are highly regarded, some of the masters of the, of the form, even Robert Heinlein, I would, I would imagine, that didn't hit the ground running. A few did. I would say that Cordwainer Smith did, and there are probably a few others we could point to. Richard Matheson, I think, he hit the ground running. One thing I liked was seeing that apparently Heinlein, as good a writer as he was, was a reluctant one. He would go long periods without writing. Yeah. What it says to me as a writer is that when you're writing science fiction, I'm never going to be that super smart science guy, you know, like so many of the early science fiction writers were like Asimov or John W. Campbell or some of the other people that had advanced degrees or were psychologists, they had PhDs in psychology. I'm never going to be that guy. But I can be someone like Alfred Bester, who was a very smart guy, but he was just a really good writer who had a very interesting mind. I mean, if you read anything about him, what he was like as a person, he was a very, I don't want to say bohemian, but he was definitely an unusual guy who wasn't afraid to speak out about the quality of science fiction. Even as we've talked in the past about what we consider to be the real golden age of science fiction, which was the 1950s, when works like this were published, these works of science fiction that really elevated the form, he was still saying, you know, that's not good enough. It should be better. And it can be better. And then he went out and wrote something like The Star is My Destination and proved it. That's setting a bar for me personally. I'm proud to say that every book that I've written, I've always tried to be better the next time out. And I think I've done that. And I've just published the, the Nowhere Navy, my first science fiction novel, and I'm proud of it. But I look at it and I see, okay, there's elements of it that I think could be better. And I'm doing that in my sequel to that, The Epsilon Passage. And when I finish that, and I'm going to try to go after something even more challenging. I am more drawn to challenging ideas than ordinary ones. Right. And that's kind of the transition that I'm trying to make is to continue to be a good storyteller, but to tell a story that's more and more complex. I love this book. It's it's going to be very high on my list going forward. But it also got me thinking about other works that I've read in the last year or that I've read previously in my life that were inspirational to me as a writer or that influenced me significantly as a writer. And I'm wondering if we can take turns talking about different books or works or writers that influence or inspired us. I'm going to start out with the first book that really was important to me, and that is Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lengo. That book was the first book that I can ever remember reading that felt like an adult book, but it was a book that was still a children's book. It seemed like it was set in a real adult world, even though it was a fantasy with fantastic beings and traveling across the universe. It still felt like a real adult and somewhat scary world. That book opened my mind to, I don't know the exact chronology, I might have this wrong, but I started reading books like I read the original Frankenstein, I read the original Dracula, I read Moby Dick, I read some more challenging classic works of literature and that was started to shape me to not 
wanting the more childish sort of fiction. And I couldn't. I couldn't read kids' books. That's probably why I didn't read a lot of juvenile science fiction, because by the time that I was reading voraciously, I had already read Madeline Langell, and then one of the other things that inspired me, Ray Bradbury. So I was reading some fairly sophisticated stuff at an age when I could have been reading Heinlein Juvenile or some of the other juvenile ones that you read when you were younger. Well, as a matter of fact, I did go through a period where I sought out every single Bradbury collection I could find in my small town. It was the 70s in a small town, so this literally included seeing a book on a teacher's desk that was not at the library and asking to borrow it. Really? That's cool. What book was it? Do you remember? It was a collection, and the form the title took, there's a word for it. It's driving me nuts. Like, S is for space. It was like a pattern thing. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. I know which one you're referring to. I can't remember the title, but I probably read that one, too. Yes. R is for robot or something like that, maybe. That one, whatever it was. When I was younger, I did a lot of science fiction reading of the juveniles, and that was slightly before the Bradbury phase. Those books, I feel, influenced me, but they didn't inspire me. I get that. Yeah, I stopped reading science fiction at a certain point, went on to other things, rediscovered it later. When I think I told the story on here, when I discovered my parents had three boxes of the magazines from the 50s, and those were what inspired me to write because I was so fascinated by the world of the science fiction magazines in the 50s. I wanted to be there. I wanted to write like them, be a part of it. The whole thing, the whole experience, the editorials, the letters page, the yes. science articles, the whole thing, right? Oh, yeah. The whole experience. Yeah. I understand that distinction between inspiration and influence. I don't think I had a lot of inspiration early on. I had a lot of influence. And a really great example of that is Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan at the Earth's Core, which is not the greatest work of literature, but it was an important book because it was a beautiful summer day. I was staying at my cousin's house and I was bored. My uncle had a huge collection of paperbacks, science fiction, westerns, war novels, all kinds of good stuff. And I found this copy of Tarzan at the Earth's Core, which had a picture of Tarzan and a dinosaur on the front cover. I'm like, okay, that looks like that's right up my alley. And sure enough, it was. It's about where Tarzan travels to the inner core of the Earth, to Pellucidar, the prehistoric world at the center of the Earth. And it's great. You know, it's Tarzan fighting dinosaurs, rescuing fair maidens. It's awesome. And that opened my my eyes to Edgar Rice Burroughs. And luckily, my uncle had a bunch of Edgar Rice Burroughs in his collection. So I read several more. When I went to the bookstore after that, I would always try to pick up a copy of the Pellucidar, the Venus books, or the Mars books, or whatever. And that led to a lot of other pulp characters like Conan and H.P. Lovecraft and, and others. So that I had this foundation of the pulp classics that kind of set my taste going into adulthood. And I hate to say it kind of limited my taste to some degree because it took me away from regular science fiction. So that was a very influential book, even though I don't think I've ever felt like I need to aspire to that level of writing because, you know, it's a book about Tarzan fighting dinosaurs. I mean, it's it was highly entertaining, but that's about as, as far as it goes. Well, you know, what's kind of funny. The very first adult book I read was Journey to the Center of the Earth. I read that, I believe, and I know I read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I loved the Jules Verne books. 
I tried reading 20,000 Leagues, but it didn't grab me. It, it's a little bit of a slow start, but I don't know. I really liked it. You know, one of the inspirational books that I read along the way, especially for science fiction, was Dune. I remember reading that back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And like a lot of people, that's one of those books that it's right up there with Lord of the Rings as like this gigantic book that just blows your mind. And when I first read it, it inspired me as a writer because it had sort of those pulp elements to it. The Freeman in the desert, the genetically engineered warriors that the emperor sent to wipe out the planet and all of these great pulpy elements. But it also had this really complex, rich, emotional family drama and personal journey of Paul Atreides. Just a fantastic piece of work. So that blew me away and it really inspired me. And then when I reread it a few years ago, when I was back to writing regularly again, it inspired me again in terms of world building because I had read The Lord of the Rings at this point. Those two books, I would say, along with George R. R. Martin's Fire and Ice series, are just magnificent achievements in world building. So if you're going to do space opera, which is one of the things that I want to try to do, you've got to really excel at world building. Those are like the gigantic books that you need to consume and absorb as a writer to really be able to, to do world building on an epic scale that's very believable, that's detailed, that's carried all the way down to the, the lowest levels. So that was a book that on more than one reading inspired me in one way or another. Another hugely influential book for me was Inherit the Stars by James P. Hogan. I remember discovering it on a book rack in Pamida, both of which don't exist. You don't have book racks, you no. don't have Pamida. No. And the description on the back absolutely captured me. And it is exactly the kind of story I love the most. They find a dead astronaut on the moon, and then they discover that he's 50,000 years old. So a huge part of the book is figuring out all these clever things they can do, tests on his suit and translating the language and all that to try to figure out where he came from. It's a puzzle. It's, it's a, puzzle a book story. long puzzle. I absolutely loved it. And I think it is a huge lesson in taking a really great, simple idea and just taking it as far as you can. I love a story with a great premise. And then the author plays that premise out to its most satisfying conclusion. Yeah. That's another thing that I, I hope to do is to find stories with great premises and really execute the premise to its fullest capacity. Another one that was inspiring to me was I Am Legend by Richard Matheson. I was already a Richard Matheson fan. I've been reading him for a long time. I had read a number. I think I read Hell House and uh, a bunch of his short stories. And I read I Am Legend probably about 15 years ago. And the thing that blew me away and really inspired me as a writer was how he just utterly nailed the alienation and loneliness of being the last man on earth. Now, I had grown up, I had watched The Omega Man with Charlton Heston. And that movie, it looked like it would be really cool to be the last man on earth. You know, because he had this fabulous Manhattan apartment penthouse full of art treasures and machine guns. And, and the food never went bad. Yeah, and he was making himself beautiful dinners. And, you know, it just looked like a really cool, it's like, I'd love to be that character. But the actual novel is anything but that. It just really is heart-wrenching when you realize that this guy's the last human alive. 
and the ending is very downbeat and sad. So that was like drilled into me the lesson that you have to create a compelling character with a compelling story, and it's okay if that story doesn't have a happy ending. If you're true to the character, and if that's the story you need to tell, then tell it. I just want to finish off by saying that now The Stars, My Destination is on my list of inspiring works. It's something that I'm going to live with for the next year as I'm working through the next couple of writing projects that I have. It's going to guide me and give me a guidepost to try to adhere to, to reach out for, to say, I want to try to get something that at least approaches this level of intelligence and imagination. And I'm really happy to have found this book. Good. Any other thoughts? Well, the only other thought I have is I did want to mention that it was part of a special publication of a series of books in the 1980s. It was like classics of science fiction or something. I could not find the series title, but they're all bound the same. Brown cover with a dark green label and the title in gold. If you see any books bound like that, they have been vetted as being the top in science fiction. Okay. I'll put that on the list. All right. That's it for episode 35. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.